to another interview with In Theory, the podcast of the JHI blog. My name is Glauco Scatini, the host of the podcast and PhD candidate in history at Fordham University. And today I am speaking with Hannah Marcus, an assistant professor in the Department of the History of Science at Harvard University. We are discussing her new book, Forbidden Knowledge, Medicine, Science and Censorship in Early Modern Italy, which was published by the University of Chicago Press and is the recipient of the JHI's 2020 Morris D. Forkers Prize for the best first book in intellectual history. The book investigates the censorship of medical texts in Counter-Reformation Italy and demonstrates how the interactions between ecclesiastical censors and physicians created a new arena for the discussion of scientific knowledge. Good to have you here, Hannah. Um, so let's get started. Um, your book traces the story of, of many books, so I believe it is particularly appropriate to uh, start by asking you to tell us something about the story of this specific book. How did you get interested in this project? Uh, what brought you from 21st century America uh, to 16th and 17th century Italy? Absolutely. Thank you. Um, so this book's story, well, of course, this is like the project of a historian to self-narrativize my own career a bit here. But this story, this book started in the rare books reading room at the University of Pennsylvania when I was an undergraduate, um, taking Peter Stallybrest and Roger Chartier's class um, on the history of the book. And they pulled out some censored copies of Petrarch because... Of course, Peter was working on that at the time and has re retains a strong interest in the material. And I, I just remember being absolutely struck by these objects. That is that they're blacked out and they're crossed off and mutilated in various ways to use one of the terms that my historical actors used. Um, but they struck me as being like charismatic objects and I thought they were fascinating. Then we can pause for a minute in my personal story because it's never quite so simple that like you have a moment and then, or maybe for some people it is, but for me it wasn't. <laughs> and I decided to go to graduate school a few years later. And while I, when I started graduate school, there was a publication that came out by Ugo Baldini and Lynn Spruitt, um, which had sort of like 4,000 Bible thin pages of material published from the 16th century about science in the office of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. So that's the archives of the Roman Inquisition and the archives of the Index of uh, Prohibited Books. And I was super interested reading through these materials. This was like one of these incredible things that I had the opportunity. This is an archive that was newly opened about 25 years ago. And so this were some of the first major collections to be published out of it. And I, so I became incredibly interested in reading through these materials. And this sort of started um, my first year seminar paper as a graduate student thinking about some of these questions. And I think that in, in retrospect, it might've been, it makes a lot of sense that I ended up in the study of the history of censorship because I was really interested in the history of the book as a material object. I was really interested in the history of religion in the time of the, the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation. Those have been things that have just intrigued me for a long time and I'm an Italianist. Um, and so I was very interested in the relationship between religion and science. And I think that all of those things sort of like in many ways come together to point to a study of the history of censorship, but I, I didn't know it at the time. Um, so it was a bit serendipitous that I ended up there. And I think that it's worth maybe pointing out also that, um, well, it's not serendipitous. I, I, I got there because my wise PhD advisor <laughs> asked me good questions and then let me find my way to this material and put these volumes by Baldini and Spruit in my hands the second I stopped, I like appeared in graduate school. So it's, I think maybe I'm a story of, of good mentorship along the way as well. So that's sort of like how I came to this project. Um, the project itself shifted a huge amount over time. And I think that that's something that I like to make a point of talking about a little bit because I feel like the graduate study is so, is incredibly pre-professional right now. Um, and there's immense pressure to sort of be writing the book as you're writing the dissertation, as you're writing the seminar paper. And like my book did come out of a paper that I, of, of a seminar paper, the sort of guts of chapter two was my seminar paper in my first year of graduate school. But that doesn't mean that it's exactly the same. And my conception of the whole project changed a huge amount along the way. I sort of intended, am I going off to, should, can I keep going? I, I'll just add one more thing, which is that I'd intended for this book to be about censorship sort of writ large and ex taking expurgation as, as a, 
different way of looking at censorship instead of sort of an entirety of prohibitions, like partial prohibitions. Um, and it ended up being about medicine. Um, and that was sort of a shift that came out of my reading in the archives. So this book has you know, taken some twists and turns in order to get where it is today, which is outdone, which I'm so delighted about. <laughs> and I'm sure that's the best thing uh, that, that a book can be done. Uh, no, thank you. This is really, really uh, fascinating. And let me actually continue with something uh, that I think is very related to, to what you were just uh, just saying, because this is a book that sits really at the intersection of several different fields, uh, as you were mentioning, book history, uh, history of science, uh, church history, to name just a few, uh, the list could go on, I, I feel. Um, so let's imagine that uh, like one of the early modern librarians that you uh, discussed in the last chapter of the book, you had to classify this book. Uh, how would you describe it? Uh, what are the um, historiographical conversations uh, that shaped your work uh, the most? Uh, what are the main historiographical interventions that you make in the book? Absolutely. So I think um, putting on my librarian hat for just a second, I mean, I'm not a librarian, but thinking like a librarian, I was uh, interested to see that my book is in, in the Library of Congress classification system, it's in the Z's. So it's about like, uh, so per the press's categorization, it's ended up being about, about censorship and about bibliography, which is kind of interesting because I'd always imagined my book in the BX's in the history of religion, um, which is where I spent most of my time in the stacks as a graduate student. Um, so I was very, I'm very interested in, was, remain very interested in the history of religion and the aftermath history of Catholicism in the aftermath of the Reformation and um, thinking about what lived what, what what a lived experience of being a scholar in this time was. So I'm very interested in work on the history of scholarship, on changing scholarly practices, um, the long well, it's not that long in the 16th century, but into the 17th century, long history of humanism. Um, and, and then I was very interested in the history of sort of maybe a, a golden age of Italian science, right? Like the time of Galileo. Um, but it seemed to me that the story of Galileo had like hugely shaped our thinking about the characterizations of the relationship between science and Catholic censorship. Um, and what I was finding in the archives is there's a much, it's a much messier story, right? This isn't like the, the scientist gets put under house arrest and can't read these books, right? Um, what, what I came to understand was that there, there are a huge number of people involved in trying to censor books, um, many sort of stakes for individual actors at both within the Catholic bureaucracy and within the medical community. Um, and, that, and that there's a lot of sort of messiness that comes out of it. But one of the things that's so interesting about censorship, I think, and that I that I talk about a little bit is the, the paradox, or there are several paradoxes of censorship, but one of the paradoxes of censorship is thinking about the ways that, um, that censorship makes visible and makes explicit um, conversations about and characterizations about knowledge of knowledge, characterizations of knowledge that otherwise are normally implicit. That is that censorship created this, Catholic censorship created a learned forum in which books were discussed and those discussions were recorded for posterity as people tried to work out what parts of texts uh, were necessary, were useful and necessary to Catholic society and which weren't. Um, so those, those were sort of a number of the questions that came up for me. And I, I mean, maybe I'll, maybe I'll jump ahead just a little bit to talk slightly more about Galileo here for a second, which yeah, is, sure. Go ahead. which is where my book ends, of course. And, and part of that, that, that wasn't intentional at the time, you know, again, like you write the prospectus and go off and do the research and then see what direction it goes in. Um, that was not the, the plan at first, but when I was in the archives reading all of these documents about petitions by physicians, censorship of medical works, licenses to read, requests for licenses to read prohibited medical books, um, prohibited astrological books as they related to medicine. Um, and then I came across the, in, in the diary, which are the sort of minutes of the congregation of the index of prohibited books, um, I came across 
the documents related to the censorship of Copernicus um, in 16, originally 1616, and then the revisions of them in 1619, uh, 1920. And I remember just being like, oh, wow, you know, like this, you know, it's just like it's in the archival series alongside all of these other documents. It's like this story about Copernicus and Galileo is one that we always pull out, you know? It's always treated separately. Um, and here I was in the archives and I was just like, look there, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just alongside everything else that I was reading. And I, I was like, this is totally hokey, but I'm gonna sit and copy it. Like it's published elsewhere, right? This is, a, I, I'm discovering nothing, but I was just having this sort of moment of engaging with a project that I was thinking about as the history of medicine, natural, like mostly medicine, right? Medicine and um, botany. Um, and then there was Galileo, the Galileo story, like the Galileo affair is part of that. And so that's sort of, I think that, that sort of started my thinking on how I might be trying to reframe a broader conversation about censorship that pushes our understanding of, of how this, how this canonical episode came to be that pushes the story much earlier. And one of the things that's kind of interesting is that Gal like Galileo's communities are part of that story earlier too. So at a time that there's a huge push to revise and correct medical and natural philosophical books in Padua, um, Gal Galileo's there at that time also, right? This is part of his world. Um, and I think that maybe we have, uh, I mean, of course, you always have to draw lines around a project, right? And draw lines around which stories are most important. But it seemed to me that um, our most important story of Galileo was missing the fact that uh, that story was shaped by a broader conversation about medicine that happened in the decades prior to it. Thank you. This is very fascinating. And there will be things I'm sure that we will uh, come back to during uh, this interview. Uh, and actually, since you were talking about your your discoveries in the archives about censorship, uh, I really wanted to uh, you know ask you to uh, look a bit more closely at one of the most fascinating aspects I think of the uh, of the book, uh, because you really make the case that uh, we should look at censorship not by asking whether it worked, which is the, the usual question I think that we all uh, ask, uh, but what it produced. Uh, what were the products of censorship? That's what you ask in the uh, in the introduction of the book. Uh, and later on, you really bring us uh, into the, the, the very office, as I would say, of the censors uh, and show us how they worked. Um, you, you really demonstrate how much the, the products of their work uh, depended not only on the requests of church authorities uh, that were important, of course, but not the only factor shaping uh, the products of censorship. Uh, they also depended on the, on the personal piety of the censor, on the upbringing, on the education of the censor, uh, at times even just in the opportunistic gains that the censor thought um, he could realize. Um, so, um, I want to ask you oh, how does this- oh, Cremonini, <laughs> right? Exactly, <laughs> Opportunistic <exactly>. gains, <laughs> Cremonini. Yeah, keep going. Exactly. <laughs> and so I really wanted to ask you, you know, how does this new framework that you, that you propose change the way we understand censorship? Uh, and, and perhaps even more specifically, uh, what does it tell us about the uh, interaction between this large bureaucratic structure of the Catholic Church that purported, purported to be all powerful, but maybe it wasn't, uh, and individual agency, which had a, it seems, uh, impressive role in, in, in shaping the process of censorship. Yeah, and this is this is a question that has a lot a lot of parts in it. So I hope I'm just going to get started talking, and hopefully you'll redirect me if I go too far too far astray. But I want to point out that the thing that became very interesting to me about censorship was that these indexes of prohibited books come out that are like here's hundreds of authors that you aren't allowed to read, whose works you aren't allowed to read anymore. Um, and that sort of, that list of authors is somewhat incompatible with like actual intellectual life in Italy in the 16th century, um, because medical books are necessary and they're written by Protestants because ancient texts like Hippocrates and Galen are absolutely essential reading for physicians and are edit and we're being edited by humanist physicians in Northern Europe, right? Like there's a number of different reasons. Um, we might even think of reasons outside of medicine, right? Like legal um, texts that are, that were necessary still to the functioning of, 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 of legal, legal schools of thought in Italy at the time. Um, so that sets us up with like this problem, right? Which is that like, Lots of people needed these texts, but also there were these huge 
far-reaching prohibitions on them. And I think that this sort of paints censorship as being this like yes or no culture. But what actually ends up happening is that actors at the time, both physicians, um, lawyers, but also um, church officials are trying to come up with a set of compromises that will allow these books to continue to circulate. Uh, and that, that set of compromises we might think of as like in terms of expurgation, right? So expurgation is a partial censorship. So instead of burning the whole book, you rip out the preface and then burn that and keep the rest of the book. Um, and, uh, and this just sort of like opens the door for a huge amount of interpretation. And, and that's really fascinating to me, right? Who's choosing what passages of books need to come out? Who's the who are the people when, when an index when an expurgator like an index of expurgations comes out in 1607 when Rome publishes an index of expurgations in 1607 with a bunch of different authors and those expurgations like line by line these are the parts to take out from this word to this word who created those like this became like we could just read this as law or we can read this to understand like a vast apparatus of sort of intellectual work that's being done in order to create these kinds of regulations um from, and, and if we think about it that way, we can understand sort of the intellectual work that was not fully done in 1559 when the Pauline Index came out, right? So that you get someone like Georg Agricola, who's Catholic, but has a German sounding name and gets prohibited and has to like work his way off the index later um, to these situations like Leonhard, the works of Leonhard Fuchs, copies of the works of Leonhard Fuchs that are just names of plants. So why can't I read, you know, like as a, as a 16th century Italian physician, like what, why, what's the problem with keeping that if there's nothing fundamentally religious? And so this starts to carve off the religious <laughs> from uh, other realms of intellectual authority and expertise. And that seemed like a really sort of fascinating area. And then in addition to carving it out, expurgation and these processes to try to correct, that's the word that Catholics at the time were using, correct books to license them to readers and allow people to use them under certain kinds of conditions. Um, those, those kinds of processes shaped the ways that people got to have these texts and, and how people interacted with them. And so maybe to like move to your sort of question about bureaucracy, we might think about the ways that a changing Catholic bureaucracy in the aftermath of the Reformation, right, after Trent and in the years that followed, led to different kinds of ways of patrolling knowledge, right, <laughs> and, and storing knowledge, too. I think one of the things that I thought was really interesting about this book, or while I was researching this book, was, um, well, I'm going to go on a tangent. Are you ready for this? Is a tangent okay? We are. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so, um, when I started researching this book, I was, um, I'd intended for it to end um, after a chapter that looked at censored books as material objects. So that was gonna be the end of the book. But as I was doing that work, um, I, I, you know, I called every copy of Leonhardt Fuchs's works in the Vatican library, you know, I, and most of the other libraries around Rome. But I also realized that they, this sort of approach of just looking for, prohibited authors was a bit needle in a haystacky and that I needed to understand these bureaucracies better. And that one of these like sort of sites of engagement with censorship that I needed to understand better was libraries and understand how the libraries that I use today as a scholar were shaped by their interactions, for example, with censorship in the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, so that led me to write a whole chapter about the histories of libraries and how they came to be in the these universal libraries or attempts at universal libraries in the 17th centuries, how they came to be, how books like the Palatine collection from Heidelberg got integrated into the Vatican library, how readers could get in trouble still for copying from expurgated copies of texts at the Ambrosiana in Milan. Um, I just, I found it to be absolutely fascinating that the, the many different kinds of structures that readers were navigating in the course of the 16th and 17th centuries in order to do their scholarly work, right? We might, like, if we just go into a library in the United States and look at an old book, you're like, oh, look, there's the old book. <laughs> but when you see that book within its collection, right? And understand the kinds of 
um, physical constraints that these texts had on them and the sort of bureaucratic demands of somebody trying to get somebody who needed to get or apply for and receive a reading license in order to keep it, um, whose reading licenses were revoked periodically when the changing Catholic bureaucracy shuffled things up. Um, I just think that really changes the way that we think about the work of what it meant to, to be a physician, especially in like a, an incredibly bookish profession like medicine. One more story. Um, <laughs> the other day, I've been reading the correspondence of this um, physician uh, from Udine who goes to Rome to be a physician for cardinals. He reveals to about two years later into his letters that he's really there to get to be the physician to the Pope. He's there to get rich. Um, and and he's got this whole collection of books, prohibited books. That he's got a license to read. And that's how I stumbled across him is that it was one of the few of, like actual licenses to survive. It's actually a notarized copy, but most of the licenses that I talk about are quite ephemeral. Um, and he's got a copy in that he's left in Udine when he goes to Rome to work. And he writes to his brother and he's like, I've got a copy of Cardano's commentary on Ptolemy's Quadripartito. And like that, that's the one with the birth horoscope for Jesus Christ. And, and he's like, I can't get a hold, you cannot buy this book in Rome. Could you send it to me here so that I can sell it and make a ton of money? So right, like there are people, and that's like clearly not, this isn't in my book, I came to it, I just discovered it a few weeks ago. But I mean, like that, that's like maybe not such a, a pious engagement with this system. Um, but I think it reflect, like it sort of, it gave me the opportunity to reflect again on the ways that for sort of any learned physician who's working with in this bookish culture, that this is part of the way that they're thinking about the work that they do and how they're navigating their, their world as a physician. Um, maybe do you, I can talk more about people for whom it is pious. My, my well, I, I have actually a question that uh, in, in a certain sense relate to, uh, to, to all of this, all the things you were saying, but thanks so much. It's, this was very uh, fascinating. Also, this new uh, anecdote is uh, it's, it's amazing. I mean, really, it really changes the way we, we, we think about the systems that we think were very rigid and, and they were not. They were very much flexible and in, in unexpected oh. ways, I would say. Absolutely. And, you know, he writes in, he's like, he writes to his brother a couple, like a couple weeks later. And he's like, just so you know, in case people are worried about sending that book, like I have a license for it. So it's just fine. You know, I mean, like people, I feel like this is just like an, invi not invisible to people at the time, but people didn't need to mention it in the same ways. It's just like an obvious part of going about their intellectual lives. Um, but we have to recover that and sort of think ourselves back into um, all of those complications. Okay, keep going, sorry. Right, right. <laughs> no, thank you, thank you again. Uh, no, I'll move to another point, but, but again, it's a very much, um, it's very much connected to, to, what, uh, to the things that we we're saying right now, um, because you really uh, show in a, in, a, in a very fascinating way how a conversation around censorship were uh, instrumental to the definition of what medicine uh, was. We used the term, of course, but, uh, but, but what was medicine in the 16th or 17th century? Um, and in particular, these conversations around censorship gave impulse to, to a discourse that justified, that's what you show, uh, the, the need to access prohibited books uh, because they contained useful uh, medical information. And so I wanted to ask you, how does this um, discourse of utility and professional expertise, I'm, I'm quoting uh, your words from, from the book, uh, how does this discourse uh, change the way we understand early modern medicine uh, and its relation to, to other disciplines, uh, including, of course, religion? Absolutely. I think that um, utility, well, there's one discourse of utility that's about making a lot of money, right? <laughs> that physicians will employ. Um, but that's not the utility that I'm that I was that I was seeing over and over again in petitions for reading licenses and discussions of what parts of books needed to be expurgated out and which parts could stay. Instead, I was seeing a sort of a discussion of utility that's, um, it was about utility and necessity and the utility of prohibited books for the medical profession. Um, and then also the utility of physicians, right? Well-armed physicians armed with prohibited books for Catholic society. And, you know, that was something that came out, I, I tried to really hard to historicize this term. And I think that this is one of the book's sort of major contributions for folks, especially interested in the history of science, um, where we, I think too often we've taken utility 
um, sort of at face value to mean practical applied knowledge, right? And and that follows from a long tradition, especially in like the uh, English scholarship, like an English and Anglo American scholarship, but following Francis Bacon, right? And looking at this new way of thinking about technical knowledge in this same period. But I don't think that that's what I'm seeing in 16th and 17th century Italy. I think that what I'm seeing when I, when I see people talking about utility and the necessity of these books is a set of justifications. We talked a little bit earlier about the ways that expurgation um, and this sort of like line by line reading and discussing discussion of what parts can stay, what parts can go, starts to set off maybe a separate realm um, for the role of the physician versus the role of, of religious expertise. And I think that one of the ways that physicians are engaged repeatedly in justifying their need and 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 delineating their um, the sort of epistemological realm of the physician is in terms of utility, and that that's all. I think we need to understand that recourse to utility as being in direct conversation with a system of censorship. So we might think about utility as being a discourse of utility that's being amplified, and I'd also argue confessionalized over the course of the 16th and 17th centuries in Italy. And I mean, there are other taking utility as a historical question, as opposed to an assumed, as having an assumed meaning, um, is something that folks in the enlightenment have done for a long time, right? Um, as, as you know well. But I think that that conversation is, looks really different when we look at sort of technical expertise um, and, and recourse to utility by physicians, um, claims to utility. Um, in confrontation with systems of ecclesiastical censorship. So that's, that for me coming to that, it was sort of one of the long journeys of the book <laughs> um, in that, I guess I was, I'd, I'd picked up on this term utility early on and was really interested. And that became sort of like a, a, <laughs> a justification for the book itself um, was this focus on utility that I thought that we'd um, mischaracterized or not fully explored as, as, as historians. Um, but I was a little bit worried. I was like, maybe I'm putting this on them, you know, which is okay, right? Like we can analyze the distant past with terms that folks in the distant past wouldn't have used themselves. Like that is justifiable. Um, and, and an important scholarly project in many realms. Um, but I was feeling a little bit uncomfortable with it. And then I came across um, a copy of a book where the, the word utility itself was crossed out. And that seemed to me, right, that that sort of became a, a way of praising a Protestant author, um, which you can't keep praise of a Protestant author. So that like, utility gets crossed out. And that seemed to me to be one of those moments where I realized that the term had become sort of religiously loaded. And that even if we, again, turn to, turning to sort of the epilogue of my book, um, if we turn to the Galileo affair, one of the things that we can see, if we look for it, if we know to look for it, is that Galileo's dialogue on the two chief world systems, um, front and center is discussing the utility of his knowledge as well as his expertise. That, um, and again, that's like, what if we take a canonical example and we put it back into the longer conversation that it comes out of, as opposed to sort of taking a canonical example and letting, letting that set the um, agenda for how we think about other questions. Thank you. Thank you. It was very fascinating to uh, to hear. Uh, and we keep going back to Galileo. I will have a question about at the end. But uh, anyway, uh, since we mentioned uh, expurgation um, uh, several times already, uh, I really thought that some of the most fascinating passages of the book were the ones in which you deal with expurgation and, and with the practice of censorship more broadly uh, as a form of the Natio uh, Morier. Um, in a certain sense, uh, you show that both were ways for, for Catholic censors to uh, take a non-Orthodox object and, and turn it into a Catholic uh, object. Um, and so uh, first, I wanted to ask you if you wanted to uh, describe uh, some examples of these practices, um, expurgation specifically. How much uh, for... time do you have, Glass? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have a lot of time. <laughs> <Not for our laughs> listeners. 
<laughs> and then more, more broadly, um, what, what do you think these practices tell us about uh, process of, of confessionalization uh, in the early modern world uh, and about the policing of religious boundaries? Uh, or to put it in a different way, what were the boundaries of Catholic learning in the early modern world that you studied? Absolutely. Um, so I knew that I wanted this book to be that I wanted part of this book to be engaged directly with material objects. As I said, at the beginning of this conversation, that's a methodology that was really important to me that sort of sparked my interest in these um, expurgated, these censored books as, um, I, think, I think of them as charismatic objects, right? Um, and so maybe it's worth really for just a second on the process of how I, how I did this, which is that like in the morning, I worked in the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith Archives, so in the Inquisition and, and uh, Index Archives. And then he, in the afternoons, I went to libraries all over Rome to call gazillions of copies of censored books or books by authors who should have been censored if they were to be kept in Catholic libraries. Um, and then I went on a sort of whirlwind train adventure around Italy for a few months and looked at and looked at books in in many different collections um, around around the country. Um, so it's really interested in the material objects and, and trying to think about how the material objects, how looking at the material objects enriched our understanding of a process that could seem otherwise to be sort of limited to bureaucracy or um, sets of normative prescriptions, like what happens when the rubber hits the road and somebody has to expurgate their book. And that's, that's what people did. And that's one of the things that's worth like pointing out, right? Is that, so if, if, um, a physician in the early 17th century has a copy of a book by say, Leonhard Fuchs, and they get a license to read it, their license says that they're allowed to have it as long as they correct it according to the index of at a certain point of 1607, as long as they've corrected it and they've, they've crossed the author's name out of it, they've um, dealt with a number of other sort of interpretive rules or even like line by line expurgations that are required in different indexes. Um, and so then looking at how that's actually done is this totally fascinating um, world, again, of interpretation. And I mean, gosh, picking a favorite book. I mean, I can't pick a favorite, but I have so many different stories and maybe I'll try to limit myself to just a few. One, Fanza. <laughs> Fanza 2014. Um, I was at this library and I, I'd gone to Fanza. I'd been working in Bologna, but I went to Fanza because um, the library had really fantastic catalogs. Usually books aren't cataloged as being censored or expurgated. Um, so I was just calling them and seeing what happened and trying, then I played this game with myself to try to guess if things were expurgated before I opened them, which allowed me to actually, I learned a lot about bindings from doing that um, and found a lot of books that were like expurgated on the, on the edges or on the, um, the bindings themselves were expurgated. Um, but I went to Fanza because I had amazing catalogs that said quite specifically that lots of copies of books were expurgated. And while I was there, the librarian, was incredibly kind after I'd looked at all of the expurgated books in their collection, said to me, or almost all it turns out, um, he's like, are you interested in censored books? I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> I certainly am. Um, and he went out and he got this copy of um, the Bible. And this is in the, uh, the Erasmus's translation of the New Testament. So it's in Greek, or it was originally in Greek with uh, Greek on the inside, like next to the gutter. Um, and then on the outside column was Erasmus's Latin translation. And the book had been expurgated so that it, and that we were diverging from medicine, but it's still a great object, had been the, the outside column that included Erasmus's work, work on the book had been completely cut off. And then the book had been rebound in this like octavo, I don't even know how you describe it, like half of an octavo format. And it was just one of these like amazing moments, right? Where people are responding to the format of the book in order to change uh, and expurgate it, right? And this other copy, copy two, <laughs> object of discussion number two. Um, another copy of, um, this one was a book by Leonhard Fuchs, his like Compendio Medicini. So like on, a, a, like on the, on, it's his medical textbook, one of his medical textbooks. Um, and his name has to be crossed off. His name is on the verso of every page. Um, and so from this like practice, Domnatio Memoria has to be crossed off every time it appears. 
but that's a huge amount of work because it's a gigantic book. And so the person who's got it, uh, who owns this book decides that he's going to cut out, cut in, and then cut just like across the whole page to get rid of just the top of the book. Um, and then a few pages later realizes that they're cutting off all of the page numbers as part of that process, right? Because I mean, if you can visualize this for a second, um, you know, the, the name is on the verso, but then the page number is on the outside. So, so then he, the, he decides to cut down and out. So it looked like when you looked, when you held the book up in front of you, it looked like somebody had taken like a bite out of it because you, because this is the age of like information management too. And like, this is Anne Blair's too much to know time, right? The, these books are being sold with their huge indexes, their indices, and you can't use an index if you don't have page numbers, right? You can still find your way around a Bible without page numbers. That's not a problem when, when the outside column gets cut off. Um, but again, this is like responding to the text itself. Example three. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I've came really interested in is how people um, maybe, well, how they engage with texts physically, how they engaged with the physical process of expurgation in ways that complied maybe with the um, with the letter of the law, but not the full rigorous intent. So like maybe very thin lines through things. One of my favorite um, people, and this does comply with the letter, but people who would change the letters from one letter to another. So like a P could become a B, right? Uh, an I could become iota you know like different it could become lots of different things um so which which then transforms forbidden text into sort of text ornament into gibberish without being just like a nasty black smudge across the page because people early modern people you know it's not just us that are obsessed with like nice frobin editions you know people at the time knew that those were nice frobin editions and they wanted to make sure that as they're engaging with them that they kept them looking nice too so it's not just that people don't want to burn their books because they're expensive they don't want to black them up because they're nice also so I became really interested in the ways that different ways that readers um, sort of enacted these changes on their books. And one of them um, that was really unique to me was a copy that's at the University of Padua Library. And it's a copy of Leonhard Fuchs's um, um, On the Fabric of the Human Body. So he's responding to Vesalius. Uh, so it's a medical book. And then over the name Leonhard Fuchs, he's written, he's written words. And this doesn't this is the only time that I've seen this. Uh, he's inscribed words onto it and then pasted over them. So this was sort of like a private reflection. And the words that he inscribes in the first instance are is a passage from Ariosto, a paraphrase of a passage from Ariosto about when it's appropriate to dissimulate, right? Like when you can hide your true feelings. Um, and then the next one is one of these sort of lacrimose Petrarchan sonnets, like, uh, Tutil di piango e poi la notte. It's supposed to be quando, but here it's piango again. He's really got like weeping in his mind as he does it. And I became really like intrigued by this particular example because one of the things that, um, that Anthony Grafton asked me pretty early on in the project was to think about the ways that, uh, like what, what meaning it had for people to have to expurgate their books, like what, what it meant was there any opportunity? Did I have opportunities to respond to what it like meant to people to have to expurgate their books? And I had found some like passing remarks, like I'd rather not have them at all than to have to ruin them, you know, like things like that. Um, but then I found this guy who's expurgating, but like sort of disguising while reflecting on when it's okay to disguise your true intent and reflecting on that and inscribing that into the practice of expurgating the book as well. And that was incredibly interesting to me as we think about what it might be possible to recover from an object um, and, and how reading objects needs to be part of sort of the interpretive process of reading archives as well. And, you know, maybe one more, one more thing to say on Damnatio Memoriae is that it became very, this, this was one of these like amazing, uh, like amazing nudges to go have conversations with people outside of your immediate um, immediate area of study. But I'd gone out to dinner. I was in Rome at the same time as Stephanie Frampton. 
And we had a, uh, we had a fellowship at the time from uh, the Rare Book School and Mellon Foundation that paid for us, that paid for fellows to have dinner together. Brilliant. And so I didn't know her, but we'd gone, we'd, we'd, we went out to dinner in Rome and got to talking and I was telling her about the things that I was seeing. And she was, she said to me, have, you know, have you done, have you read about Damnatio Memoriae at all? Because there's a rich literature on um, the ways that like sculptures in, from classical antiquity, from uh, Roman antiquity in the, in, in particular, are, like sculptures are, of emperors are like literally defaced, like their faces are cut off of them and turned into other things. Um, and I, I didn't know that literature. That literature was not part of how people were talking, uh, the way that people were talking about the censorship in early modern Europe. But I, but I went back after our conversation and read up on all of the conversation, all of the um, texts that she'd suggested that I read. And I realized that this is absolutely what was happening, <laughs> that this censorship, that these like different ways of engaging physically with the material object to censor it is not about forgetting who an author is. Because I was, I was so confused about this. I was like, why black out the name so many times when you also keep a license that says, I have a license to read Girolamo Cardano and I black it out over and over again. Like I just, it wasn't making sense to me. Um, and I came to understand through thinking more in terms of Donatio Memoriae, that what's going on really is a reshaping of, of memory and of historical memory. And I think a reshaping of the process of reading uh, too for people. Um, that is that for somebody who has a copy of a prohibited book in front of them, maybe with their reading license on it or inscribed in it, the author's name crossed out, that that fundamentally changes the, con the, the way that those readers were approaching their books. That is that they are reading, and I've, I've thought about this a bit uh, in terms of um, Grafton and Jardine's reading with pen in hand, but not, but not to commonplace to extract the good things, but to remove the bad things. And I think that this like, so on the one hand, this book is telling a story about censorship that is like, things are a little murkier. It's not just that books disappeared. Um, people had ways of getting at them. People could alter them in different ways. People got licenses. People continue to be in conversation around these materials. So in the, on the one hand, that seems like a little bit cheery. But on the other hand, one of the things that I want us to read into this is that if we're understanding the material objects as fundamentally shaping the interaction with the material, with, with, with the texts themselves, that they're, folks in the 16th and 17th century are forced then to bring this sort of age of confessional conflict to all of the reading that they're doing. Um, and, and I think that that's very dark and, and that that's something that we should think a lot about, about what it means to, um, how the context of reading shape the kinds of interpretation that might take place also. Thank you. Thank you. This is very, uh, very fascinating. And uh, I think we're getting closer to the uh, end of our conversation. So I'll move to the epilogue eventually, this, uh, this Galileo affair that we've been mentioning repeatedly already during this interview. Um, because in the epilogue is where you analyze the, uh, the Galileo affair, uh, and you really show, as you've mentioned already, I think, um, that Galileo's defense of, of Copernicanism was based on the argument uh, about the, uh, the utility of scientific expertise, uh, an argument that, of course, clearly echoed the one made by physicians uh, over the previous decades, uh, the one that we have been referring to uh, already. And so you claim that despite Galileo's eventual condemnation, uh, uh, the, the whole affair shows that the discourse of utility was, um, and here I'm quoting you, uh, a winning discourse, uh, and it became a defining feature of scientific culture. Um, and so I wanted to ask you about the long-term impact of this uh, discourse um, of utility on the development of scientific culture. Uh, and more specifically, uh, what does it say about the role of Catholicism in the um, scientific revolution? Thank you. I think that utility I think that we've recognized for a long time that utility is a really important part of enlightenment science. Hard stop. <laughs> I think that what we hadn't realized was that there's a robust discourse of utility taking place in science, in Catholic, among, among scientific practitioners in Catholic Italy in response to 
Catholic censorship. And so one of the things that I want to show that I that I hope I've shown in my book is the way that this discourse of utility took on this new religious meaning. Um, so that in a sense, in essence, I'm asking us to read backwards instead of forwards in time in how we think about this this discourse of utility. That is that instead of foreshadowing uh, enlightenment utility, perhaps we should look backwards to understand the ways that Galileo is using utility and expertise in relation to um, a system of censorship that's sort of front and center in how he's engaged with his own work. Um, so I think that thinking about how that discourse of utility changes over the course of the later 17th and into the 18th century. I mean, I think that's that's another project. Um, I hope that someone else is inspired to do it. Um, I think that without understanding the, the mechanisms and the systems um, that I think I've hopefully been able to illuminate in this book, let, let alone the intellectual questions about how people are engaging with medicine at the time, um, I, I don't think that's a question that we knew to ask uh, before this book came out. So I'm hopeful that that's um, a direction for future work. And I mean, I've got I've got a whole list of other projects that I think, <laughs> I, maybe not me because I'm running out of hours in the day, but that maybe other people could do uh, in relation to some of this material as well. But I mean, it is, it's just, it's an endlessly fascinating set of questions about the relationship between science and religion, about who gets to, control thought about how our thought is influenced, people's thought is influenced by their interactions with the material forms in which it's presented. Um, and the many ways that people evade systems of censorship also. I mean, that that is, um, of course, one of the lessons that we should take, especially if you're ending with Galileo, right? Ga Galileo never had a license to read Copernicus, but like, we know he was reading it. <laughs> You know, so there's, um, you can follow these systems forever, but you also have to understand that we need to be working uh, with an understanding of the ways that people um, are happy to flout these rules also. Though I do think um, that maybe one of the things that this book adds is very contextualized and careful understanding of what um, pious engagement with some of these systems looked like, as well as sort of active resistance to a, sense, uh, to a censorship regime. Thank you. Thank you so much. <clears throat> Thank you for walking us through, I would say, uh, really some of the most fascinating aspects of, of, of your book. Uh, and there are many more we could actually talk about. I can uh, assure the, the listeners that there are many more uh, and, and they will have to find out uh, for, for themselves uh, when they get plus a lots to read this book. Plus lots of pictures. So um, That's true. That's I true. do think it, I've, I've asked you to do some sort of mental gymnastics, some Galilean thought experiments to think yourselves into these books a little bit, but the pictures are an important part of it. And all the pictures about the, the cases of expurgation and censorship that you were mentioning, they're all in the, in the book. And those are extremely fascinating pictures. Uh, but before we end, uh, I wanted to ask you about the, the project or, or perhaps projects, uh, plural, uh, that you're working on right now. How do they relate, uh, if they do, uh, to, your, to your previous work? And where are they leading you right now? Absolutely. I've got a lot of projects and I'm very excited about them. Um, so. Maybe I'll point out that this book, uh, the, the censorship book came out this year, but also my translation of Camilla Erculiani's letters on natural philosophy came out this year. And the connection there, of course, is that this is um, Camilla Erculiani's working in Padua. She's an apothecary and her, her text on the natural philosophy of the, of the flood um, comes out in 1584, is printed in 1584. And then get, she gets in trouble with the Inquisition in Padua for that. So that became, I was, I was thinking about this and translating this in relation to my work on censorship at the time. But one of the things that's so interesting about this book that sort of became a bridge for some of my other projects um, is that one of the things that she's arguing is that the flood, the capital F flood, um, and maybe you've talked to Lydia Barnett um, for this podcast as well. She, she won this book prize last year and opens with a discussion of Camilla's um, understanding of the flood. Um, so she, Camilla Erculiani opens her book about the, her understanding of the flood by explaining that it's caused, it's a, there's a materialist explanation. Uh, that is that people were living for too long, right? Like 
you know, Noah lived to 850 or something like that. Um, Methuselah is in the 900s. People were living too long and they, they were giants and they were taking up too much earth matter. And then the, the elements had to rebalance and that's what causes the flood. Not, not that the flood was sent by God. So obviously that's a hugely problematic explanation for the inquisition, but it's a hugely interesting uh, uh, issue for me because I've been interested in, in tracking sort of for quite some time uh, examples of people who'd lived for a long time. And I've been, you know, work on a physician named uh, Nicolo Leoniceno. He lived to like 93. Um, Tommaso Rangoni is in his late 80s. Aldrovandi, who I write about in this book, was 85, 86. Um, so I'd been interested. I'd been sort of like tracking in my mind people who were living for a long time. And then when I saw this apothecary who's arguing that the flood happened because people were living for a long time, I was like, oh, this is a project worth doing. So I've now been working on old age and understandings of old age and longevity in the early modern period. Um, so that's been occupying a lot of my time right now. And I've tried to sort of bring to it the same sort of sensibilities about bringing multiple, methodolo multiple methodologies um, to bear on the same question to sort of like, you know, turn the problem over and look at it from the perspective of, of print history, from the perspective I'm adding social history this time. So that's kind of an interesting foray for me, in addition to sort of traditional, more traditional intellectual history, history of ideas. So that's been a really um, exciting and fun project that's grown uh, maybe in, a, in an unexpected way out of my work on censorship. I also have a book that I'm writing with Paula Finland on Galileo's letters and a digital humanities project that I run with Crystal Hall on um, Galileo's library and letters to trying to think about new ways to interrogate this historical corpus and ask questions of it. Um, so those are a few of the things that are keeping me busy right now. Thank you so much. That sounds fascinating. We have things to, uh, to look forward to uh, over the next uh, few years, I guess. Um, so I, I guess many, it ends many our- Many years. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. That's very good to hear, of course. Um, so I think this ends our, our conversation. Uh, so let me uh, congratulate again um, on, on, on the prize. Um, and thank, thank you. you um, and thank you for, for, for talking to me. I, I think this was very fascinating for, for, for me definitely. And I hope also for all our uh, listeners. So again, uh, thank you the time for, uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to me uh, today. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Kabako.